That's a great question because I think that's really where it sits, right? It might be, you might be able to stay heart open in an intimate or erotic moment because that's, you're focusing on that, but then you go out into the day and, you know, you have a life and you have, I don't know, a dog to walk and groceries to do and all the things that need to happen and it, it lacks. And that is a common complaint in, in you know, a partnership and relationship that people feel that unless it's the special moment it's not re there's no through line in in a certain way so when you ask why um, or how do I keep my heart open in day-to-day -day situations it's a layered exploration in the sense that um, let's see how I can say this your heart is always there it's just that we have learned to not pay attention to get in order to get other things done. Mm. Right? So for most of us, the way we go through life and the things we do you know, in our daily life, it's very perfunctory. It's very much like function. You've got to go from A to B. You have to get into you know, public transport or you have to go shopping or you have a house to run with your partner, children, animals, business, right, all of that. So how we've learned that is essentially uh, more on a, let's say, um, perfunctory survival level, right? And what that means is that when we acquired the skills to do the things we do in life, we either acquired them without the need to stay connected to a partner Right, because most of the things that we do nowadays, let's say when you go and do grocery shopping or, or something like that, you're not actually relationally engaged. And when you learned how to shop for groceries, you didn't do that in a partnership or for most people that's true. Right? Some people get married very young and they have the experience of that joint um, building habits which is nice, but for, for most people, you learn the things that make your everyday experience happen solo and not partnered and not in a relational fashion, but in a functional fashion. And so um, it's often the case that then when we want to involve our partner or our partners with us, or even when we come a, you know, upon the grocery clerk um, or you know, whomever, we are not actually relationally trained because it's a solo, solo and, and solely uh, function-oriented action. So that's the first thing to know. It's not bad that your heart isn't wide open when you go grocery shopping with your husband. <laughs> you know? But the, the issue is that when a whole lot of your day is that kind of perfunctory activity, then it can really feel like you're losing out. Um, you guys were talking about this on the first days, and you know, children and and travel, and uh, you know, you were living out of a suitcase and all of that. And it functions well, and it's it's a good thing that you can, you know, be effective. But it lacks that, you know, that kind of interesting. Not relational feeling. It doesn't even. Let's not even talk about erotic stuff because in the grocery store, erotic isn't what you want. In the kitchen, 
well, maybe you want erotic <laughs> in the kitchen <laughs> on occasion, but not in the middle of preparing a meal for your family, let's say. So the way to look at that is that you cultivate the heart skills, the ability to keep your heart open. And the ability to keep your heart open has a few components, one of which is compassion. So a big aspect of heart openness is compassion for self and others, meaning knowing that it's not always going to go right, knowing that they are also human, knowing that they uh, do the best they can, um, assuming that they have their own stuff going on that makes it hard for them to connect, uh, you know, assuming that maybe they are in a completely different headspace than you and what you see as neglect might just be them having a hard day or being worried or also having learned that activity with a fair share of tension or um, stress even attached to it. So compassion is a big aspect of um, heartful engagement with other humans is that, that we can train ourselves to, and you did that today very beautifully actually, you could actually feel the other person and you felt when the other person was at their limit and then you backed off. And in that feeling the other person, there's a really interesting thing in there that in that moment we kind of forget about ourselves in a good way. Because when you walk towards somebody and you're feeling where is their boundary, you're not actually going, that's not my boundary. Right? You're just actually feeling them and kind of offering them your sensitive heart and your sensitive body. So compassion is one thing that one can cultivate, of course. right? Loving kindness meditations, um, seeing your partner as a human with their own things. Um, having a generally positive attitude towards one's partner, assuming things are you know, good uh, between the two of you unless proven otherwise, not the other way around. So that's a practice that one can do all the time. Right? And a big part of that is seeing the partner as their own entity with their own issues versus serving your needs. You know? or serving the family's needs, which is what we all do, right? We want people to serve our needs. And by cultivating that compassion, we can get out of that a bit. So that's one thing you can always practice. The other thing is you can, in fact, practice that staying heart connected to your partner and feeling their fluctuation and then metering your feedback, so to speak, to their fluctuation. We do it typically with our animals and children a lot easier than with our partners because we assume that they, we assume goodness and we assume helplessness in a certain way, right? With a smaller child or an animal. Um, while with our partners, we sometimes feel like they're out to get us, you know, or they're ignoring us or things like that. So those are two things you can always do. You can always practice those things. It happens for different kids at different ages, right? Some, some, I have this one client, he, he always used to say he had, had a daughter and a son. And so he used to always say that with his daughter, they had such a close relationship, right? Because it's father, son, uh, father, daughter things. And, and then suddenly it was like, um, she was like in a train that was, that went into a tunnel. 
and he had to run alongside the tunnel on the outside for like three or four years, hoping that she comes out at the end of the tunnel, meaning the end of puberty, uh, intact. And he said it was the hardest thing ever because they went from being so incredibly connected to nothing. Uh, and that is painful. And there is no ifs, ands, and buts about that. But one of the things that you can trust is it will pass. Uh, that's the thing you can always trust. It might take a long time, but it will pass. Because as people grow up and they grow beyond a certain kind of a individuation phase, they actually realize that their parents are also humans and that they actually did quite well for the most part, right? And then things change and then they come to you as an adult wanting your adult perspective. In the meantime, the feeling of their heart and you feeling when they do that thing, right? Which they do, which most young adults have no qualms doing, right? With their parents at least, you know, that you respect that in the context of their individuation and go, oh, that's their no right now. But it's very hard to not to take it personal, mm -hmm. that's for sure. So the, the, the approach there, I think, would be to allow yourself to feel them, but train yourself to not take it personally so much in the sense that you're going, that's them learning how to assert boundaries. Yes, and then if you back off a bit, often they will come. You know, you know that. It's, there's an interesting thing when you kind of pretend you don't care, then they'll come. And that's also an offering of the heart is that you just make enough space that they can enter versus crowding them so they have to retreat. But that's very hard. And I have to say that, um, you know, I don't have children. So, uh, you know, I can't even imagine what that must be like when you raise somebody to adulthood and then they are pretty much fuck off for a couple of years, you know. <laughs> so, it, I, you know, I think people who are a little bit ahead of you in the age, uh, you know, in the, in the, their kids are older, they probably can tell you what happens after and, uh, you know, support you there a bit. But as far as the heart goes, um, there's the ouch. Right? And that's why we often don't want to feel it. It's much easier to just pretend like we don't feel anything and crowd them a bit or nag, you know, the, nag the husband in the supermarket because that's easier than feeling their pain and your pain and all of that. So it's not for the faint of heart, but that tiny little bit of extra feeling towards the other typically makes a huge difference. Just keeping attuned to the heart. Sometimes you can't keep it open, but then at least you know it's not open and you're not kidding yourself into this being some grand moment. You can just then just go, wow, I'm really closed right now. I'm really pissed off. I made that offer. It was totally refused. Uh, fuck you, right? And you know that. You don't kid yourself into believing that you are still extending something, but you f know that you're closed and then that's okay too mm -hmm. till you can relax it again. So that particular pattern of your partner having a moment of drama or a high anxiety, is it work-related mostly? Yeah. So work-related anxiety. He calls you, uh, downloads everything to you, you fix it, soothe him, um, give him coaching. Then 
you essentially send him back out into the world so he can continue. And then you hang up and then you are depleted. And then um, the after effect is essentially you are angry or resentful that you don't have space. Whatever you do, it's not making any difference. Most likely it's a thankful job. And is there also kind of a with retreat or withdrawal in the more sexual erotic situation afterwards or not really? So it doesn't affect your erotic engagement, but it affects your everyday life relationship engagement. Yeah. And so how long has this been going on? So since you've known each other. But would you say that otherwise you have a good relationship and dynamic? Yeah. And you're a coach? Yeah. So you are, he essentially uses you as a professional. He uses you as a professional. You are giving him life coaching when he is in anxiety. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this in a negative way. I think one of the, one of the compelling aspects of getting into relationship with someone, ideally, is that you have skills and talents and gifts that um, serve a purpose in the relationship. Right. And in an ideal world, you have two different kinds of people who come together and they both bring their greatest gifts and their greatest talents to the relationship and enrich their relationship. Right. That's and, and then if you have, it sounds like your erotic life isn't necessarily suffering from that, which is surprising, by the way, uh, and hence very good. Right. Meaning a lot of women would probably then go, ah know kind of leave me alone so that's actually really nice because it it means you have a lot of other good things going on but this is a pattern and this is an established pattern in the relationship that you both contributed to and now you're saying well i don't want that anymore so you have to have a little bit of finesse about that because like you said you can't just turn off the tap i mean you can but it's going to be fairly um let's say, explosive if you do. What would happen <laughs> if you would not pick up? This is just a thought experiment. I'm not saying I'm, I'm telling you to not pick up. I'm just wanting to know what, because you are a coach and you know him well and you've yeah. done this for eight years. So let's kind of play out a few scenarios so that I also get a feeling of your part in this because clearly there's a huge payoff for you in this pattern as there is for him right so what it, what would happen on his side if let's say he just does, don't pick up yes so essentially you caught yourself in a situation where if you are not um, giving triage it feels like, first of all, you don't contribute. And second of all, it's just not going away. Right. Yeah. So that gives you a bit of an answer on how to work with that. Right. Because um, if it is established that your worth in the relationship is talking him down the cliff, then, of course, if you stop talking him down the cliff, in your mind, and maybe in his, 
you have no worth in the relationship. Right? What's his worth in the relationship? Okay? And he muses you even when he's anxious or yeah. you need to fix him before he can yeah. muse you? Would he say that your value to him is your ability to fix his freakouts? So you have a few options here. You can play around with this. Since you are in this field, I'm sure you'll develop some intelligence around it, but it's going to take some discipline, right? Because you have adult parts and young parts, right? You're well aware of this. One of my problems sometimes with attachment styles is, is that they're an excuse for not growing up. Right? Because it's considered that that's just the way it goes and then you attract somebody who fulfills that thingy and then that's the end of that. But we can actually parent our young parts into adulthood. Right? We can totally do that. We could say right, that there's a young part of you that um, measures her worth by contributing help yeah. right that young part of you has a positive aspect and a negative aspect right the positive aspect as always in such things is that that makes you a great therapist a great coach makes you a great partner and allows you to actually problem solve for for people right mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if you have children stepchildren right so same thing then probably makes you a good stepmother because you can actually mother them. The problem, of course, is that the negative aspect of that young part will sell yourself out for asserting the worth. Mm -hmm. right? So what that means is that you're constantly assessing what's worth. You know, what's, what's, what's worth more? You helping or you taking care of yourself? And the answer is always, you lose, they win. Yeah. Now, when that happens in the professional domain, that's not true. Because they win, you get paid. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is a very, that's, the, it's much, much cleaner. Where essentially, you go, I have a skill. It's born from, you know, whatever my talent, my childhood, uh, you know, patterns and my general disposition in life, that talent is worth X, you give me X, I'll fix your stuff, we're both happy, yeah. right? That's pretty cool, yeah, because you have a bankable skill. Now, in your partnership, you're not getting paid in a, let's say, measurable way. So what you've kind of worked yourself into is that you get paid by not having the hassle. So you're trading your skill for a promise of intimacy, mm -hmm. right? But the problem is you're not getting the intimacy because once you've put that fire out, the next fire will arise. So you're constantly selling yourself out. You're providing free services for no payment. Hence, you're resentful, angry, shut down, don't like it, which is the opposite of the muse. So your musing aspects are the adult aspects where you are an inspiration to your partner. This thing is a young thing.
probably a fair bet to think that he either had an incredibly overbearing mother or a mother who couldn't mother him probably, either or, or both. Yeah, so then she couldn't mother him properly. Yeah, it's one or the other, right? So, so what that means is he's looking to you, his small, you know, lost self, is looking to you to provide the kind of security that he missed when he was anxiously attached, essentially. But when you give him that kind of security, that doesn't actually feel like home. Because home is drama. Home is chaos. Home is that constant push to have mommy love you when she doesn't really, right? Which rep he replicates in work like many, you know, many people do. So what's happening is you're playing out the stance of him making you into the person who on one end fixes things, but on the other end actually uh, doesn't fix it because the moment you get resentful and, and uh, withdrawn, he gets his wish, which is mommy. Right? So it's this real mindfuck. You, you're following me, right? So he's, he's essentially going, mother me properly, please, which you do. But the moment you do, he goes, that's not what love is. So let me, let me push it to the point where you withdraw. Ah, now. Oh, I'm home. But now mother me, because I have, I'm an internal dramatic man needing mothering. Oh God, now she's withdrawing from me again, right? So he's looped you into this push-pull of wanting something that he doesn't have a... Steve and I always talk about not having a chip, right? Like he doesn't have a, uh, an, in, an, an opening for the chip of actual good mothering. Mm. So he always has to push you to the point where you then do that, you know, you're frustrated, you're withdrawn, you feel like you don't get your own needs met, which for sure as a 19-year-old is the, you know, you kind of, you don't want to be a mother, you know. So, or not all the time at least. So, so that's the dynamic. So when you look at that as a therapist now, not as your husband's lover or wife, lover, is, and the love, that's the thing, right? The lover is the adult. You don't call your mother your lover. Right? The mother, and you don't call your mother your muse unless you're really sick. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so that part, that's his adult part calling forth your adult part. Right? And then there's his small child part calling forth your small child part. And the death clench there is that regardless of what you do, it's not going to be enough, which is probably your childhood programming that you couldn't quite do it right, mm. right? So, which is a very European thing, by the way, yeah. right? Most European parents uh, parent by um, being very disappointed, mm -hmm. right? You know that one? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're roughly out of the same cultural soup, right? Um, very disappointed parents do a very, you know, it's like, it's very interesting because most parents in Europe don't, they're not loud or abusive or anything. They're just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So that's your thing, right? So if he plays into yours, you play into his. So 
parking all of that, if you were a therapist advising a client, what would you tell your client? If somebody would come to you and say, what do I need to do? What would you say? Okay, I'll put you out of your misery here. <laughs> you must appeal to the adult in both of you, right? The important piece is you appeal to the child in him and he appeals to the child in you in that situation. So you must appeal to the adult in him. So as an adult muse to her lover, what do you say when he calls in yet another frenzy? Imagine for a moment you are Picasso's muse. You're like one of those eccentric French weird-ass women, the red lipstick and the cigarette and the black turtleneck, painting yourself much better than he will ever. What do you say when Picasso goes, oh my god, I'm busy painting better than you. Yes. Right? So that's, that's your thing is you have to grow the muse balls <laughs> to go and you can say that I'm assuming you have very frank conversations you can say to him look this is a pattern that goes against what is good in our relationship it's been going on forever we've both contributed to it I cannot be creative inspired fulfilled turned on excited about my life or our relationship when I'm constantly fixing your trouble. I'm happy to support you. I'm happy to be your sounding board, but it can't always be that I drop everything when there is trouble. So what we're going to do is we're going to have office hours. You know what I mean by that. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you go, I'm happy to support you. I'm happy to help you solve things. But there's office hours. Mm -hmm. I'm available at this time, this time, and this time. Anything that needs helping, I will be there 100% during that time. But I can no longer drop everything when you need help. You're a grown man. Many of those things, you can go around the block, talk it over with yourself, and then when office hours start, I will be there to help you figure it out. And then you have to have proper boundaries, right? Because I'm assuming he's not a brain surgeon calling you while somebody's on the operating table and he needs to discuss this right now or that patient dies. Yeah, exactly. I want my mommy. You're not my mommy. Fuck you. Right? I want my mommy. And, and so you have to essentially go, I'm not your mother. I can be your therapist during office hours. The rest of the time, I'm your muse and your lover, and you don't call your lover um, to complain about Gogar being better than you. you know? And that, so, so that's the thing. You have to channel your inner muse and apply that kind of disposition to him, which will pop him out of that thing. Yeah. If eight years into the relationship, he's still dealing with the same dramatic 
patterns, the best thing you can do for him is to tell him to snap the fuck out of it, you know, in a very kind and nice way. And so you say, I'm here to help you, but only after five or whatever. And there's a window. It's not an endless window. And you'll say, if there's something going on that, we, that you need, um, I'm available today between five and six. And then hold to that and see what happens. Yes, yeah, well, that's fine. He can, he can bounce around the outside, right? This, the, the, this is why I'm saying your thing is that you somehow think that if you don't contain him, you'll have to mop it up later. And that might be the case to begin with, but he's not an idiot, clearly. And if you are not there to constantly blow, you know, uh, out the flames and, and, and wipe his nose, he'll figure it out. He could get a therapist, for instance. Then he can call a therapist. He can call a male friend. And like I said, he can walk around the block and figure shit out himself. He's a grown man. And so there's nothing wrong with him calling you three times and you texting and saying, I'm in the middle of a creative process. I'm not going to stop right now. I'll talk with you when we get home. And he goes, how could you? And you go, look, we have a muse relationship. This isn't that. I'm happy to give you office hours as a therapist, not as your muse. But we are not going to perpetuate this thing endlessly because it's going to damage our relationship. And I don't want to live like this. It's been going on for eight years. You need to figure this shit out. Best thing you can do for him is grow him up and grow yourself up. So you're right. You can say to yourself, grow yourself up. Do the things that make you a grown-up, which is your creative endeavor, your creative inspiration, you are developing that. That is the best thing to do. But you can't do that if you're constantly bleeding out any excess creation to keep him stuck in a pattern that neither of you likes. Right? Because you, you're essentially an enabler. Enabler, you, when you give somebody the thing that you know that's not good for them, you allow them to do, it's like, you know, you have a friend who's diabetic and they love cake and every time you get there, you give them cake and, or, or they go, can I eat cake? And you're like, yeah, yeah, let's go eat cake, right? That's what she's doing. <laughs> because the last thing he wants is to make you uninspired and uncreative. So all you got to say to him is, this is very uninspiring and it zaps my creativity. And I don't think it's good for you either. So I'll be around to help you with things, but not on call. I'm not your on-demand teletherapist. What, what, where were the days? I don't know how many of you remember the days when I wasn't answering machines. Oh, man. Right? I remember walking into the base that, you know, you, in Vienna, you have these um, apartments where downstairs there's like, well, the same in Europe. Where did you grow up? Frankfurt, yeah. Well, same thing. You have a bakery downstairs or whatever, and then you walk up and then there's the apartments on the top. I would walk in as an Indian restaurant in the, on the basement on one side, and I'd hear like far, far up. I'd hear the sound of my phone ringing. And I knew there was no way I was going to make it up there. So you didn't even try. You kind of knew people would call back if they really needed something, right? 
Those were the good old days. Um, now it's assumed that you're on tap at all times. By all means, close your heart on the subway, yes. right? What we're talking about is interrelational knows, right? We're talking about you are with somebody who you actually want to maintain a relationship um, or want to cultivate a good relationship and you want to be able to stay with them so that they can feel you and you can feel you in the context of a boundary setting, right? So that could be at work, you know, where people are trying to uh, make you do things that you don't want to do, but you want to maintain that relationship because you work there and you get a check, right? Things like that. It could be with your family where it's important that um, you all love each other, but that you also maintain being your own person, you know, as Gabriella is painfully experiencing right now, right? Where, where you have to set a boundary so you become your own human and then, you know, you can relax it again. Or, and it could be with an intimate partner. On the subway, you want to be invisible and have sharp elbows, <laughs> right? So there's nothing wrong with um, armoring yourself up to the teeth and not being available for anything, mm -hmm. right? But <clears throat> there's a trick to this. Mm -hmm. So the trick is that even though you present a um, armored, you're like a armadillo or something like that, right? I love those, they're so cute. Um, um, so yeah, they are very cute. So maybe not an armadillo. Um, I don't know, what was that thing that they used to have these, with this cartoon transformers or something oh, like yeah. that? Yeah. Right? yeah, so when you get to into, the, into New York City, you turn into a transformer, right? You're like all armors and it closes all down and you're walking, you know? So that's perfectly fine, but inside, under all that armor, you keep like that warm, gooey chocolate heart going meaning you want to maintain kind of that light uh, warmth on the compassion, understanding that what's happening out there is the function of people being way overtaxed and way overwhelmed and everybody just wanting theirs, right? Because that's, that's their survival thing. But no, you don't want to give any invitation and you, you don't even want to ever make eye contact or um, look like you care about anything. But inside, you can still go, well, I hope your day gets better. You know, blessings on you, asshole, fuck off, right? <laughs> you know, whatever it is that you have to do so you maintain safety, but at the same time, you don't lose your humanity. No. And then when you are safe somewhere, um, meaning it is appropriate to let your guard down, you practice de-armoring from the shields and you know protections of that time in New York so it doesn't calcify. Mm. That's the thing, right? The thing isn't that uh, you're now stuck, it's just that whatever you do the most becomes the most, you know, um, prevalent pattern. So if all day you walk around super armored, it's going to get harder and harder to put the armor up. So the key is not 
to um, suddenly become open-hearted on the subway. The key is to remember that when it's safe, you practice open-heartedness. <laughs>